you are. And, and beyond all that, we'd really like to experience you. So we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would reveal, Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus, reveal the Father's heart, reveal yourself. Just make yourself real to us and give us the understanding and the hope that our relationship with you can be as deep as the deepest friendship and as experiential as the best friendship and that we can really come to know you and enjoy you. That's what we want to see happen in all of this. So we honor you, Lord. We say by your Holy Spirit, do this tonight and take us forward towards you. Amen. So this series is the practical outgrowth of a series uh, called Relationship Not Religion, which is on the website. And it's really foundational. It's defining our faith not as a religion but as a relationship. And if that were the case, what ought it to look like? And how does that change our understanding of God? So some of the guys are going through that now, and um, it's fruitful. I would recommend that you listen to that at some point. Everybody has a life message. Every preacher has a life message. This is relationship, not religion, is mine. And uh, I care about it more than anything. So um, it's the foundation for the practical part that we're going to look at now. But in this introduction to abiding prayer, we're going to hit on a few themes that come up in relationship, not religion, because we need some theological foundation for going forward with our experience. Make sense? And by the way, you guys can interrupt at any time and make a comment or uh, ask a question, and that won't mess up the session. So feel free to do that. Shelley asked um, that I would give my testimony in how I was exposed to this. She thinks it's helpful, so I'm going to do that. Um, There was a philosopher once who said that there's two great tragedies in a human life. One is not fulfilling your dreams, and the other is fulfilling your dreams. And I fulfilled mine at the age of 28. I was a successful lawyer. I, I think I'm the youngest person that's ever argued in the Supreme Court of Canada. I argued in the Supreme Court of Canada at the age of 28. I mean, it was fluky, really. It was, I just had the right client, and I was able to go. But when you fulfill your dreams, and they're not enough, you're in really serious trouble. And I would find myself waking up in the morning thinking, why am I going to work today? And then I'd come home late at night because it was that kind of a law practice. It was very consuming. You gave yourself to it. That was the expectation. And I would come home at night and I would wonder, why did I do that? There was no meaning in my life whatsoever. There was all the success and and things, but there was no sense of purpose or meaning. And it started to wear on me to where I was thinking, if this is all there is to life, then it's really not worth living. It's bizarre. I started thinking about suicide. And, uh, and not because my life was bad. Isn't that strange? It was what they would call an existential crisis. There wasn't a meaning or purpose to my life. I think it was the work of God, really. But I wasn't thinking about God in those days at all. He was not part of the equation. Um, because I had grown up in a church which was the antithesis of relationship, not religion. It was religion, not relationship. And it did tremendous damage to me as a young person. And I hated Christians. I mean, I just hated them. 
and uh, hated the church. So those bridges were burned. So when you, when you hit the age of 28 and your life has no meaning or purpose, uh, it's kind of a frightening thing because your options have disappeared. The God option wasn't for me on the table. So that crisis took place and I remembered something my grandmother had said when I was a teenager. And she was very prophetic, and uh, she was a Pentecostal in the old days of Pentecostalism, which was genuine. And she was a prophet. She said, I pray for you every day. And she had tons of grandchildren. I pray for you every day. Uh, If your life is ever going to have any purpose, you have to come to peace with God. And she pronounced that over me, and I just blew her off. Teenager, you know. But flash forward 10, 12 years, and my life didn't have any purpose, and that haunted me. You're going to have to come to peace with God. So my pursuit of God had nothing whatsoever to do with his goodness. There was no appreciation of what he was really like. There was no desire to know him because he was good. I was running away from the darkness behind me. The vision I have of it is, You're in a forest and you're lost and it's dark and it's cold and there's noises in the distance and you're really genuinely afraid and you see the light of a fire somewhere in the distance. You're not running to the fire because the fire is good or even because it's warm or out of appreciation of the fire. You're running because the thing behind you is terrifying you. So my flight to God didn't have anything to do with his goodness. It was just out of desperation for what I was running from. So... At the age of 28 and some, I became a Christian, which I think meant Jesus became Lord of my life. I'd done the salvation transaction as a child, but it had no real consequence. So Jesus became Lord in a, in a kind of violent conversion at the age of 28, 28 and a half. And I was just thrilled to be in the business now. I saw Christianity as father and son's cosmic enterprises. We will run the universe, you know, some sort of slogan. And I had come in at the mailroom level. And I was just thrilled to be out of the cold and into the shop. But I never had any idea that I would ever do anything beyond work in the mailroom. And in this 40-story tower, the board met up there somewhere in the executive dining room. And Jesus, the Spirit and the Son and his chief executives met and talked. But the rest of us just worked for the business. That was kind of what it was like. And I was content with that for about five years of knocking, like, you know, going as fast as you can this way and crashing into a wall. And then God picks you up and turns you around and now you're going as fast as you can this way. So with the same passion that preceded it in terms of pleasure and selfishness and everything, all of a sudden it was like, okay, now it's the kingdom of God. But an entire works orientation to Christianity. Work really hard for God. And that's what he expects and that's what you ought to do. And I did. But after about five years, I mean, you just can't do that forever. It just gets you down. You just can't work for him. Willpower will only take you so far. And then you start to come up bankrupt. And we call it burnout. But spiritually, you are working for them for the wrong reasons. And there's not enough coming in giving the outflow that you're putting out. And I, didn't, I wouldn't say that I was burnt out at that point, but 
but I think it gets ti- you get tired just working for someone you don't know very well on basis of reputation alone. So I went to this, we went to this conference, a bunch of pastors. I wasn't a pastor at the time, but I was working closely with the church and one of the elders. And we went to this um, renewal conference. This, this was the thing back in the day, you know, renewal conference. And it was at a Catholic um, convent, which building we had rented because they hosted these sorts of things. And it was down in the basement. And we were doing the things we were doing, and it was fine, nothing special. And somebody got the, the idea of bringing in one of the nuns to give us a short presentation in the morning about how the con... We were just being polite, ecumenically polite. Let's, let, let's uh, bring her up there and she can tell us uh, why the order was founded and how long it's been here in the province and who started it and, and just kind of give us a context for the place that we were in. So this 62-year-old nun comes in through the back door and I turned and looked at her now, I wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit and had no, no Holy Spirit experience whatsoever, nor expectations of it. So she comes in the room, and I turn and look at her, and it's, I, it, this, this instant connection, and I can't take my eyes off of her. And I track her up there, and she starts, well, Father Lacombe came to Alberta in 1863, and he started the order of the such and such, and then he built uh, Lacombe Home and the mission at such and such. And then our order came here in 1900-whatever. And we've been here in this convent since it was built. She's giving this historical context for the uh, convent. And I'm crying. I mean, I'm just like undone. And I can't figure out why. Because this makes no sense at all. Because it's just a bunch of historical facts. She leaves. And there was this crazy compulsion. I have to talk to her. I have to talk to her. I have to get to her. I didn't even know why. But the upstairs was off limits. It's where they lived and where their offices were. And we weren't allowed to go up there. So I decided I'm going to sneak up there after lunch. I, I, and I'm, I'm going to get caught. I'm going to get busted by nuns. They're going to think some creep pervert has come into their private space. But I couldn't help it. I've got to get to her. So I, I snuck up there and I waited till I saw no one in the hallways. And then I went down the hallways looking at the open doors, hoping to find her. And about the third door, all of them were empty, thank God. And the third one, or fourth one, whatever, she was there. And I walked, I stuck my head in the door and she kind of looked at me and I said, the talk you gave this morning really touched me. (laughs) And she's thinking, oh my God, you know, a lunatic has come into my office. How could that talk touch anybody? But she was very gracious and she said, why don't you come in and sit down? So I sat down. Within two minutes, I'm pouring my life out to this total stranger. And she's just talking to me. And then we start talking about Jesus. And in the course of listening to her talk about Jesus, it strikes me very clearly. She knows him on a first name basis. Yeah. That's weird. So I said, excuse me. The way you're talking about him, it seems to me like you know him on a first name basis. And she said, well, yeah. I said, how do you do that? And she said, well, you'd have to learn how to pray. And I said, oh, I tried that. I mean, please don't talk to me. I hate praying. I do China. I do Africa. I do the Soviet-Sino split. 
I do. Missionaries from our church. I hate myself for a good half an hour. That's always good. I do my sin. That seems to dominate most of my prayer time. Yeah, prayer doesn't work for me. And she said, no, 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 not that kind of prayer. You'd have to learn to be with God. This was completely outside my experience. And I said, I said, are you actually telling me that there's something I could do and at the end of doing it, I would know him? Like you do? She said, yeah. Like, yeah, matter of fact. I said, okay, what would I have to do? And she said, well, you'd have to come and about once a week for an hour, you'd have to do what I tell you to do. And I said, okay, right there, we have a problem. I said, I'm a Protestant and you're a Catholic. And in the neighborhood where I grew up, my school was here and the Catholic school was here. And I used to have to take a different route home every day to avoid being beaten up by the Catholics and vice versa. And I said, as far as we're concerned, you're going to hell. And well, I did. I mean, I said, as far as my background is concerned, where I grew up in our neighborhood, you guys are going to hell. I said, are you going to make me pray to Mary? (laughs) And she said, I would never make you do anything that's wrong for you. You decide. I said, okay, when do we start? She said, next Friday. So for a year and a half, uh, I met with her and she gave me exercises and things to do and a way of approaching being with God. And everything that... Not the foundation I'm about to do, but all of the practical stuff was what she taught. And it worked. It really flat out worked. And um, I don't think that I was an exception to that. I I don't think I was like rare. I, I think that if we come to be with God relationally and we understand what he's like and we can lift off some of the... uh, misunderstandings and wrong teaching about prayer, and we can understand it in its simplicity, God can become far more real to us. And the Bible can really breathe. And uh, that's pretty exciting. So, that's what we're going to do. But before we get into the practical stuff, I want to go through sort of of some of the theology of how we approach prayer. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 36, and you have all heard this many times. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. When I read this, I see um, two lines. I see a vertical line and I see a horizontal line. And they describe the entirety of our life. Our lives uh, as Christians are composed of only two relationships. One is vertical and all the rest are horizontal. And we live on this world and, and this plane with people and that's the horizontal and yet there's this vertical relationship between us and him which is supposed to inform and transform all of our horizontal life completely. So in paramounts of importance, the vertical is always more important than the horizontal. But as we live our lives, that's usually not what happens. In fact, it's almost dominated by horizontal concerns. And when we come to be with God, well, maybe I'm being a bit harsh here, but oftentimes 
We don't come to be with God. We come to get God's help with horizontal stuff. And we most of spend our prayer time talking about horizontal issues and problems and this and that and everything else. And uh, he's really sort of Mr. Fix-It. He's the handyman that comes when various parts of the house break down. And that's kind of how we think of him. And yet, Jesus said the first and foremost is the vertical relationship. So when we look at the amount of time we spend in prayer, it's to me, it's almost always disproportional. You got five minutes of sort of a friendly introduction or something, and then 95% of problems on the horizontal plane. And I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about, or that's what he wants for us. How do you have a vertical relationship with an unseen person? How do you love God with all of your heart? When you go to a party, what's the first question someone asks you? Stranger, you're at a party. What do you do? What's your name and then what do you do? Right? Always. What's your name? What do you do? Now, if you say to someone, what do you do? And the person says, "Uh, well, I've been unemployed um, for the last five years and uh, it's not looking like I'm going to get a job. What happens to their worth in your eyes? I mean, let's be honest. Just Let's just, for the sake of God, be honest. You kind of, mm, I'm not sure I want this conversation to go on. But you walk up to another person and you say, what do you do? And he says, I'm the head of neurosurgery at the Sharp Hospital. I do aneurysms and all this stuff and save people's lives on a daily basis. Tell me more. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's just be honest. The world in which we live, your worth is what you do. Right? Your worth is what you do. And money is merely a, a way of keeping track. It's the most dominant way of keeping track. But it's just really a commodity that tells us how worthwhile we are. And we as a church, as Christians, uh, are not immune to these cultural forces. I am positive that we do the same thing with one another all the time. We see ourselves and we see others in terms of what we produce. It's all about our productivity. And we carry that uh, performance orientation right into our relationship with God. If you are performing well, you feel really good about him and you look forward to being him with him. But if you are not doing really well, which anyone who's honest and has any kind of refined sense of right and wrong tends to fall under condemnation. So if you think you, you really could do a little better. You know, the awful thing about legalism is um, it's infinite. You could always be doing a little more. If you, if you establish a two-hour-a-day prayer habit, you could always be doing two and a half. Come on. I read the Bible for three hours. Well, you could be doing it for four. I led two people to the Lord last. Well, it could have been three or four. You, you, you get it? So this treadmill thing that you're on, it never ends. And you measure yourself according to how you think you're doing. And the worst of it is the more sensitive you are to God to his laws, to his expectations, if they're accurate, the worse you're doing. And the more hopeless your life becomes and the more driven it becomes. And we bring this into our understanding of prayer. Right? 
How many times have you heard people use the expression, I need to do my prayer? That like, like prayer is a kind of work. You're doing your prayers. <laughs> if prayer is a kind of work, then marriage is a kind of work. And love affairs are a kind of work. And parenting is nothing but work. And friendship is nothing but work. Where's the relationship? You with me? Yeah. What kind of friendship would it be if you have a close friend and you say, we're going to meet once a week for lunch. And every time you meet for lunch, all she does is tell you about her problems and how you can help her. And she never asks you much about you or listens to you. And the hour blows by and then lunch is done and your friend is or you, who listened to all this and just been sort of picked upon, you begin to wonder, where's the friendship? This is all a one-way street. Could God ever feel that way? Could our prayer time ever leave him wondering, what was that? Why did we do that? I never got to say anything. She never asked me one question about me. I'm not saying God's insecure. I'm saying he hungers for relationship. And when we don't give it to them, we've turned something really beautiful into just another job. And it kills the relationship eventually and just turns it into just another job. You guys all know the Mary Martha thing, right? We've had that hammered to death. Why was Martha's choice, quote, the better choice? Why was it the better Ooh, choice? Mary. Mary. I'm sorry. Yeah, Mary. Yeah. She was sitting at Jesus' feet. So she chose relationship. Yeah. And Marcia, Martha chose work. work. So, look, all the works are going to pass away, right? Mm-hmm. And all that's going to be left is relationship. In fact, all heaven is is a relationship. Before it was ever a place, it's a person. Before it was ever a place, it was nothing but a relationship. So, I guess, it, I mean, yeah, we're, we're supposed to work for him in a sense, more like we're supposed to work with him. But if we don't know the person we're working with, how do we know if what we're doing is right? You know what I'm saying? The thing about Mary's choice is it's eternal. She's beginning something now that's going to go on forever. She's a citizen of heaven, as Paul would put it. She's already seeing the significance of her life in terms of a relationship. And if she's attentive to the relationship, all the works will take care of themselves. He'll make it clear what she's supposed to do. I wrote this down. What we do comes out of who we are. Right? Your attitudes and actions. You know, if a person tells you, this is what I believe, don't listen to them. Don't ever listen to somebody telling you, this is what I believe. Watch what they do. Whatever they do is what they actually believe. So what we do comes out of who we are, our attitudes, the deep things in our heart. But who we are comes out of who we're with. Can you understand that flow? What we do comes out of who we really are. But listen, there's something beyond that. Who we really are comes out of who we're with. We are so communal. We are so a function of those we choose to have as friends. We will mimic. We will mimic our friends. We will take on the group consciousness. We will take on the peer identity. Uh, most of us. Some of us are stronger individuals than others. 
I mean that as a compliment. If we're not with him, how are we going to pick up his values? And if we're not picking up his values, we're the values of a group. And let's hope the group has the right values. But most of the time, they just reinforce the worst of our performance orientations because we're all in the same boat. Isn't it neat when Jesus, uh, Jesus had an opportunity to sum up eternal life. And it, it, I've done this with groups of people. I say, what's eternal life? And almost always they say, uh, it's um, heaven. You get to go to heaven. That's eternal life. You don't die. Two things. You don't die and you get to go to heaven. Jesus sums up eternal life. And what does he say it is? Knowing This is eternal. I mean, he just comes out and says it. This is eternal life. Knowing me and him who sent me. So when he's defining eternal life, he's defining it in relational terms. Not principally as a place or not dying, but as a relationship. It begins now, it transcends death, and it goes on forever. So if it's so valuable, and we're supposed to be givers of life and representatives of the life of God, and that life is essentially a relationship, where are we getting our input to describe that relationship? What are we giving away in our faith? See what I'm saying? Is this kind of too much or pushy? This is eternal life that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then he goes on and says, and he's praying for his friends in John 17. And and he says, verse 25, and he says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order... This is the whole point of why he came, do you understand? He's about to describe the purpose of his coming. In order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Guys, if anything sums up The whole point of the Christian life is that sentence and is entirely and completely relational. A kind of relationship that's so close, you have to use the word in. Not with, not by, not around. It's not that his presence comes into the room and surrounds us. His presence is in us. All that happens when his presence manifests in the room is that what's inside of us spreads out and begins to have a greater jurisdiction. That's all that's happening. You have to use the word in to describe what's going on between him and us. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. I mean, intimacy. Intimacy. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we do healings? Didn't we perform miracles? And I'll tell them plainly. I never knew you. We, you thought you were working for me. You never had a relationship with me. What gets you into heaven is not your works. It's that you're in him. And he happens to be there, so you get to be there too. Right? It's the in him that takes us to this place we're working for. 
Let me do one more example, and then we're going to jump into the next section. But we can have a few questions at the end of this. I like to think of the Christian life as a garden hose. You are a garden hose, okay? Your job is to transmit fresh water from a source to thirsty plants. Now, the, the, the garden hose has two ends. The ends define the hose. One's attached to the house, and the other sits resting in the gardener's hand. Right? Okay, so what happens if the hose is attached to the house, the water's turned on, and the nozzle is not in the gardener's hand, it's just sitting on the lawn, and the water's turned on full? You're a fireman, so you can see this. And the hose fires out all over the place, right? Everything's getting wet, nothing's getting watered. Okay? So, what happens if the hose is sitting in the gardener's hand, but the tap's not on, or it's fallen off the bib and it's just sitting there? Nothing gets watered. So, the whole point of the hose is what's happening at the ends. One has to be receiving, and one has to be giving, but the giving has to be sitting comfortably in the gardener's hand to be directed where he seeks to direct it. Most of us spend our time worrying about making sure the nozzle is in the gardener's hands, which is good, pointed where he wants it pointed, but there's not a lot of water running because it's either come off the bib or we haven't turned the water on. And so we're trying to pour out the life of God, but we're not particularly receiving it or not enough of it. And that is what leads to burnout. When you're attempting to do works only God can do, but you don't have God flowing through you because you haven't been receiving him, now you're running in the flesh. Now you're just trying to do what he's given you to do in your own energy, and that gets old really, really fast. Right? So this whole look at prayer is looking at the tap. It's all, right now, the whole thing is about the connection to the house and making sure that the water is flowing. But the cool thing is we don't turn the tap on, he does. And he promises to turn it on. If we'll hook up, he'll turn it on. If we'll attend to being stuck on that little bib and attached to the water main, he'll see to it that the water flows. And as it flows, he'll also, because he really cares about us and everybody else, to direct us properly, and we don't even have to panic about that, that sense of where to water is going to come out of the relationship. It's not about a bunch of rules. It comes, if you're with him, you pick up his ideas and his thoughts, and you find yourself, honestly, you find yourself doing his work without hardly even thinking about it, because you're with him. And osmotically, he's leaking into you with all sorts of wonderful effects. Make sense? Yeah. Okay, before we go on to the next bit, any comments or questions or concerns? Yes, you said that uh, we are in him, but then also... He's in us, exactly. I'm, I don't know how effectively he can be in us if we're not in him. Now, I get it. I'm not saying that our salvation depends on this, but I mean, think about it. If, if we're not intent on being in him, it's hard for him to be in us. Because he requires our cooperation. He never overcomes our will. He, he's, he's, not, he's just so subtle and sensitive and gracious. He insinuates himself into our thinking. He never forces anything. He works through influence more than anything else. He eschews a command structure 
of guidance. He, most of the time, will not, with you, use a command structure of guidance because that tends to depreciate your human freedom and tends to depreciate your... What am I trying to say? He'd like to have people that do his will because they know him well enough to know his will without having to ask all the time and without him him having to direct us and tell us, now you do this, now you do that, now you do this, now you do that. Remember the Jennifer Aniston, Vince Vaughn movie? I never saw the movie, but I saw the trailer. And she's mad because he won't do the dishes. And he goes, I did the dishes. Isn't that enough for you? And she says, I wanted you to want to do the dishes for me. God would really rather us want to do it rather than him having to give moment by moment directions as to what we're supposed to do. He'd like us to function out of a relationship of love. It's pretty simple. Any other comments or ideas or questions? He said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. (laughs) I always exegeted that verse before my encounters with him. I I I read it conditionally. Uh, he would say, in other words, I love you if you obey me. Mm-hmm. And that always made me feel like I was earning his love. Mm-hmm. But really, it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. If I'm receiving his love and know his love, I can't help but serve him. Yeah, he's just stating a fact. Exactly. exactly. He, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Yeah. He's not saying this is what you should do. He's saying this is how life with me works. Yeah. This is how it works with me. Mm-hmm. And, and yet... I hate to harp on this, but we kind of know that to be true, but our operating system tends to default towards a performance orientation. Because it's in the devil's interest to have us performance oriented towards God. Because then, any minute failure is caused to step away from him because you haven't earned his love, and the enemy's agenda of separating you from the love of God, if that were possible, causing you to disbelieve you deserve it, is quite possible. Then he's accomplished his goal and he's driven a wedge in the relationship. Anything else? When it talks about like, storing the treasures in heaven, have you, I recently thought that it's more about the relationships like, that we have in life, that that's going to be our, our treasure in heaven. Is that- yeah, I think if, if this thing is about relationships, look, the only thing you're going to take with you into heaven are your brothers and sisters. Everything else is at the door. Right. Yeah. 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 I think there's rewards in heaven for a job well done. I, I, I think God is just. I think that people who've served him faithfully are going to see more rewards than those that didn't. But... Here's a funny way of looking at it. I think this was C.S. Lewis's way of looking at it. I hope I'm acknowledging the source fairly. But we're going to hit this in a moment. We gaze at God and we reflect his glory. Second mm-hmm. Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to see it in a second. Um, we're being transformed into his likeness. The people that have loved him and served him the most faithfully are going to reflect his likeness most accurately here and there. And that's their reward. He's the reward. Isn't it cool? He's the reward. He's the reward. And, and 
Reflecting him more clearly is a more glorious state of being than reflecting him not so well. Maybe it's unfair to say it, but I, given God's justice, I think there's going to be people in heaven that reflect him more clearly and perfectly in eternity than others do. And what's interesting is it won't be what we think it is. It's not necessarily Billy Graham or the Pope who are going to shine the best. It might be the church janitor that was just loving to everybody he came across every time he saw them. Yeah. We our, our system of judging spirituality is ridiculous because we're, we see it through the lens of performance and almost like money. You know, the nickels and noses, the more people in the seats, the more money in, in the kitty means that's a successful church. What nonsense. You know, what nonsense. We've just bought into the American business model. That's all. Anything else? Okay. This next section is called Beholding Brings Becoming. Um, let's just... I'm going to read you this passage from Corinthians and we'll just take like sort of a really quick trip through it. Now, the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Okay, this is really trite, but let's just go through this one little piece at a time. The ministry that brought death. What's the ministry that brought death? What's he talking about? The law. The law. Because it was engraved in letters on stone. Now, he's saying that there is this thing that God did, which he calls the ministry that brought death. Yet it came with glory, and it's an accurate representation of God's holiness, right? Mm -hmm. So how come it's a bringer of death? Because we can't possibly live up to it. And, and all it brings is shame and accusation. And self-hate and self-loathing self and, and yeah, all of that stuff. arms the enemy with loads of weapons. See, it's an expression of his holiness, but it's an expression of his holiness we can't live up to, right? Mm -hmm. So it brings, um, for sure, a sense of death and a sense of separation because it does nothing but con convict you. It's like I said in the Relationship Not Religion series. When was the last time you were driving down the road and a cop pulls you over, representative of the law, and says, you know, I just had to pull you over because your driving is spectacular. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a perfect lane change. I saw two perfect right turns and the red light thing was excellent. I just needed to tell you, wonderful, love it, go your way, be blessed. That experience is not going to happen to you. The role of the law is not to encourage you. It's to correct your mistakes. And, and it brings a spiritual death. But it came with glory. It's an accurate and true representation of His holiness. But it's not doing us any good. Right? So that the Israelites couldn't look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Now, the glory of the law fades. I know that I'm using mixing metaphors here because it was His face, but... Any glory you get from keeping the law fades because you can't keep it perfectly. Any sense of success you have this week will disappear next week according to your next failure. You understand? So we get addicted to the cycle 
of attempting to live it, gaining a certain measure of success, just beginning to feel good about it, and then having a little bit of a crash and feeling terrible, and then working our way back up into his good graces. And this horrible cycle of self-striving, moment of pride, having arrived, followed by the truth and revelation, crashes us, and we go on and on and on like this, and it's schizophrenic and crazy. That's right. right? It's destructive. Yeah. Now, listen... Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Now, Paul's introducing a concept here that he hasn't defined in the book previous to this. He's throwing out this term, the ministry of the Spirit, and he hasn't even defined what it is. But listen to what he says about it. The ministry of the Spirit will be even more glorious. So whatever glory the law has, it, this blows it away. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Guys, this is so flipping profound. There is something that the Holy Spirit does, which by virtue of Him doing it, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not what we do. Whatever He does, it actually brings righteousness to us at the core of our being. That's a radical thought, isn't it? If the one that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with this surpassing glory. Whatever the glory is as a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it blows away the glory of the law. If what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? This work, which the Holy Spirit does, contrasted to the law, is lasting. It's of a surpassing glory and it lasts. It will never stop and it will never Fade away. Kind of important, huh? Like, gosh, I want to know what this thing is that he does, because this is getting huge. Therefore, now listen, here are the characteristics of this ministry. Therefore, since we have such hope, this brings hope. The law brings despair. This, whatever this is, brings hope. We are very bold. The law doesn't make you bold. You cower under its influence. Whatever this is, it makes you bold in your life. We're not like Moses, who had to put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading. Their minds were dull. To this day, the same veil remains where the old covenant, life under the law, is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. He enables this ministry of the Holy Spirit, which will bring all these things. Only Jesus on the cross enables the Holy Spirit to be able to do this unique thing that he does, which is going to blow the law away and lead to righteousness, boldness, hope, everlasting, surpassing glory that does not fade away. Even to this day when Moses' red veil covers their hearts. Now listen. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This ministry of the Holy Spirit brings freedom. Okay? Pause. What freedom does it bring? When you hear the word freedom in the context of something that the Holy Spirit does in your life, what does it define? And this is just personal. I, I, don't, I have no proper answer to this. I just want to see what you have to say. Freedom from what? To what? Okay, so it's going to bring you a great peace. What else? What does freedom mean to you? It's freedom from circumstances. 
okay, your life and your happiness doesn't have to be defined by the present moment and how things are going or not going. Okay, what else? Deliverance from condemnation, yeah. shame. Absolutely. You don't have to live in the treadmill anymore. And your worth doesn't have to be determined by how you're doing as measured against the law. From the fear of man. Freedom from what other people think. Okay. Okay. You can opt out of the system. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. What else? What else is freedom? Just what's coming up inside? Okay. You don't have to, you're no longer defined by your failures. Because, you know, when we think about the past, this is so typically broken of us. When we think about the past, the things we remember most are not our successes, they're our failures. We tend to be defined by our failures, not our successes. Isn't that? It's so bad. You can have a string. I had a string of monumental successes, and then I had a spectacular failure. And when I look back, even after all these years and healing with the Lord, I am still defined by my failure. That's crazy. There were so many successes. But the big blow up was, that's the moment. That's the definition, you see. We have to be free of that. You don't, people, with Jesus, you don't have a past. You have a future. And it's promised to be better than the best of the past. What else does freedom mean? Freedom from addictions. Yeah. Whatever false sources of comfort you habitually turn to. You don't have to do that anymore. I mean, you just don't have to do that anymore. As simple as that. Thank you, Jesus. What else? Oh, can I share something? When I was in, I guess it was the first time I got a chance to go to Ethiopia. In the middle of the night, it was like, I felt like God said to me, when I look at you, I don't see your past sins, I see my son, and I just broke, I just (laughs) wept for hours. That's a, so liberating. Yeah. It's like, geez, yeah. God moment, he loves huh? Me. And the other day he said, "You're not a, you're not a failure. Deliverance, yeah. freedom. Hey, he really loves me. Me, I know me. He is wonderful." My favorite story is that we have this guy who comes to our church once a year, Alan Vincent. And he's planted over 2,000 churches in India and led to over 200,000 people becoming Christians. Phenomenal apostolic ministry. Like he knows the Bible better than anyone I've ever heard. He's an amazing Bible teacher. But every time he comes, I'm depressed for three weeks afterwards. Just depressed. Because, you know, the treadmill says, you don't pray as much as Alan. Heck no. You don't study the Bible like Alan does. I know. You watch television, God help me. You know, like you're shallow, you're, you're, you're worthless, blah, 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 blah. So this whole tape runs. And it takes me about three, sometimes four weeks to get over it. So I'm sitting in the backyard in that chair right there. I'm having my quiet time. And Pete comes along and interrupts it. His goal is to separate me from God because he's God in his own little mind. He ought to be the object of my affection. So I'm trying to hook up vertically, and he's tearing at me horizontally. So he's lying in my lap. He brings a little jade leaf and sets it down there, you know, and looks at it like we should be throwing the jade leaf. And I'm having this conversation with God, and I'm saying, you know, I just, 
man, I'm, I'm navel lint compared to Alan Vincent. And the Lord speaks to me clearly in my mind with the thought, and he says, you please me. I said, oh, come on, come on. That's stupid. Alan Vincent pleases you. I don't please you. How could I please you? Look at me. And he asked me a question. He said, does Pete please you? And I said, Pete pleases me more than anything. And he said, would Pete please you more if you were a perfectly trained German shepherd attack dog? And I said, no, I'm nuts about him the way he is. And he said, that's how I feel about you. You please me. It's just so heartwarming to be lifted off of the treadmill and into his arms. It's just, it's just the best. That's freedom. All those expectations and all that nonsense. Now here we get to the very point of this thing. Um, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, we just read that there is freedom. Now listen to this. This is the whole point. And we, who with unveiled or nothing between us, open faces, as we all reflect, this word here, reflect in the Greek, also translates contemplate. And it would be a better translation, given the context, to translate it as contemplate rather than reflect. So it would read something like this. And, with, and we, with open faces, all gaze at and behold and think about and look at the Lord's glory. As we do that, we are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. Guys, here's the radical, crazy thing about this. We don't become Christ-like by trying to. Just, just let that sit in. We don't become Christ-like by our efforts. If our efforts could make us Christ-like, we wouldn't be Christ-like, by definition. Do you understand? Our best efforts lead to pride when we're successful and self-loathing when we're not. We become Christ-like by contemplating Him. We become like Him by gazing at Him. What you behold is what you become. Beholding brings becoming. The transformation into a Christ-like character, Christ-like person, comes because the focus of your gaze is on Him. And when the focus of your gaze is on Him, He's having an effect upon you. How can you look at beauty and glory and perfection and perfect, unconditional love and warm affection towards you and not be changed by that? How can you? You can't. You can't know Him without being changed by that experience. Do you understand? That's the heart of the whole thing. And it sets you completely free. So, we need to know how to be with Him in a way that is simple 
and unaffected and gazing and beholding and enjoying him and having, we're a potato in the third grade class that gets cut in half and stuck in the blue water. He's the blue water and we're the potato. And if you will just be with him, if you will just be in his presence and take out all the nonsense and the performance orientation, just be with him, you will find you are sucking up the blue and you are changing colors, not by your effort, but because of who you have chosen to be marinated in. Mixing metaphors. You see what I'm saying? Beholding actually brings becoming. And Paul, in another place, in another place, does define the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He never defines it in this passage. He never tells you what it is. He tells you everything that it's going to do for you and all of its characteristics, but he doesn't let the cat out of the bag. But he does, in another place, let the cat out of the bag. And here it is, Romans 8.14. And you all know this because we've heard it a billion times. But maybe we'll understand it a little bit better. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. That's life under the law. Okay? But you received the spirit of sonship, daughtership slash adoption. By him we cry, Abba, Daddy. The Spirit Himself, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit Himself testifies at the depth of our identity, at the core of who we are, that we are God's well-loved children. And when He does that, your identity is transformed from one who works for Him or even works with Him to one who belongs to Him. And the security that comes in that sets you free from absolutely everything else. So here's the simplicity of it. The Holy Spirit's job description is to make sure you fully and completely understand who you really are and who you really are is God's well-loved child. Oh, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we are called his children, and that's who you are. And that's a direct quote, right? I mean, isn't that just wonderful? I can't think of anything better. That sums up the whole deal. So, the kind of prayer that we're going to explore is a prayer that focuses in exactly that. How can I be with him in a way that will continually remind me of who I really am in him and how he really actually feels about me? And how can I have that kind of father-child relationship with him that both pleases him and sets us free and fills us with his likeness? So here's my best story. When I was, and then we'll end and we're done. So I planted this church. Yeah, we'll do a little prayer exercise, but then we'll be done. Um, so I was a lawyer and we planted our church. And uh, this church was everything to me. Had a terrible marriage. 
uh, no children. Um, I had I had uh, sort of left a large firm to start a small practice to free up time for this church. And it was everything to me. So I was consumed by running this church. And my wife's sister, Helen, had a little baby. It was the first baby in the family. Some of you heard this story before, but it's my favorite story, so I'm just going to tell it till I die. <laughs> and Because uh, it taught me everything. I mean, this moment was just so powerful. So Willie was his name. And uh, he came into the family, and I have to be honest with you, I had no time for him. I was busy with the Lord's work. And he was, to me, a bladder with a hole at each end. And those holes cause you nothing but trouble. And I didn't want to get involved with those holes or this little bladder. Just That's just the way I was. Just a self-consumed, you know, little treadmill pastor. But at nine months, he got really sick. He was running a fever of 105. They thought he was going to die. So he's in the children's hospital. And Helen called me up and said, you need to come and pray for him. Being the family Levite, I go do it. Well, you know, that's what you are. So go to the hospital and um, anoint him with oil. And I, I was filled with the Spirit by this point in time. So I was praying in tongues and just doing all this healing stuff that we'd been taught. And uh, I just carry him around the hospital for a couple hours the first day. I'd never seen a sick baby before. They're different, you know? Like, they're not like this. They just lie there. It's almost like they're dead. It's scary to see. So I'm holding him and just walking the halls, praying for him like crazy, because it was the duty to do, see? It's my duty. So I pray from the first day, I go the second day, I pray from again, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day. By the end of a week, more than a week, about 12 days, 11 or 12 days, I'm there almost all day every day. And I'm just holding this baby and walking the halls and he's getting better and he's getting better and he's getting better. And he's going to make it and the fever's broken. Now they're just feeding him, making sure he's healthy enough to go home. About the 11th or 12th day, I'm holding him in the hall and his doctor comes up and his mom and dad were there. And the doctor says, Willie can go home today. And he turns to me and he says, give him to his mom. Willie had his arms around my neck. He had his head right here and he had his arms around my neck. I was holding him close and he was holding onto me. And I took him like this and I tried to make him let go to give him to his mother, but he wouldn't let go of me. Oh my God, that was wonderful. He loves me. He loves me. He wants to be with me, not his mother. This is this joy. It was embarrassing, but I mean, I was like hooked. I said in the tape, this kid owns me now. I belong to him. He's captured my heart. So I pull him away and give him to his mom. And a uh, couple days go by and I can't stand not seeing him. I just can't stand not seeing him. So I call his mother. Helen, you've been through such a harrowing experience. I know it's taken so much out of you. You need a day off to go shopping with the girls. And I'm so much like Jesus. I'm just willing to come over and spend Mondays every Monday from nine till four with little Willie so you can have a vacation. She goes, Mark, I know what you're trying to do. She said, you just want to be with him, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. I really do. So she said, okay, you can come over on Mondays and you babysit him. I'm, I'm taking advantage of this. This is a good deal. So I go over there and... Uh, at this point, he's not even toddling. He's just like, he's not even toddling. 
So I change his diapers and I make him smile and I do stupid faces and I embarrass myself shamelessly in ways I would never do with anybody else in the universe. Because I'm nuts about this kid. If I can get a smile out of him, if I can make him laugh, my day is complete. So we do this every Monday for five years. And at about the uh, year and a half or so, he's walking around and... I'm playing, every morning I play with him and I move furniture, whatever he points at, he can't talk, he points at stuff, I bring it over, lamps, I move lamps, I moved pictures on the wall, I even moved a couch once and lots of chairs. Whatever pleases him, I want to do it. And yet, uh, you guys that have kids, be around them, you know, all I want is to hold him. That's all I'm there for. I just want to hold him more than anything. But I can't because in the mornings he's full of energy and he won't let me. He won't. I mean, he's got a life to lead and I'm there to help him. But by two o'clock in the afternoon, he comes across the floor and he goes like this. He goes, uh, uh, uh. And I pick him up and he falls asleep in my arms and I get to hold him and I am so happy. I mean, it's just, oh my God, I'm so happy. So this one day, it's about two in the afternoon and I'm watching him getting ready for him to get tired. And I'm in a rocking chair in the living room and he comes toddling across the floor and he reaches out his hands and he goes, uh, uh. and I picked him up and I had my hands in his waist and I plopped him like that. So one foot is here and one foot is here and I'm holding his waist like this and I'm looking into his eyes about this far apart. And we're staring into each other's eyes and he looks at me and he lifts up his finger like this and he shoves it up my nose. He shoved it all the way up to the knuckle. But it's just a little baby finger, so it's not bad. It was only about this big. It, it goes up like this and he goes all the way up. And I'm just looking at him loving him with his finger up my nose. And, and then he pulls it out and he holds it up to the light and it's glistening. It's all, you know, like it is, it's glistening. And he looks at it and I look at it and then he shoves it up again. And it's up there all the way and we're looking in, into each other's eyes and this thought came and I spoke it out loud without thinking. This is really important. Without thinking, I just blurted out loud and I heard myself say this. Dear God, are you jealous because you can't have me like this? And that just dawned on me. It's like, that's, that's the whole point. That's all he wants. And this thought popped in my head. If I, being a sinful uncle, know how to love my nephew, how much more does God the Father love me? And I realized, it's just like me and Willie. I follow him around all morning, protecting him and moving things and seeing to, him, to it that his life goes as best as I can make it. And I'm happy to do that because I love him. But that's not what I'm in it for. I'm in it for when he gets tired and he comes to me and I get to hold him and satisfy my fathering impulse, which is in me. And he's exactly the same way with us. He's waiting for us to get tired enough of working for him that we will just come to him and be picked up and held. And it's for his benefit I'm doing that, not mine. It's a win-win. I get loved and it, it just knocks my socks off. And it gives me worth. And it changes my identity. And I'm beholding him. And it's changing me. But he's satisfied because he's the one with the Father's heart who longs to have his children like that. And we let our sin, we let our self-hate, we let our performance orientation keep us from being in his arms. He's the one getting robbed. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
His desire is to have you like that. Now, that's the heart of prayer. Being with Him. Letting Him love you. Being conscious of His heart. The spirit of adoption. The work of the Holy Spirit. Allowing that to change us. And to rest in Him. And to have that kind of abiding. That's what we're looking for. But we're only looking for it because that's what He's looking for. You've got to get. This isn't about. This isn't some selfish thing, you know. The devil will tell you, you're just using God. Yeah, He designed me to need Him and I'm using Him right now. But the fact is, He wants to love me more like this. He wants to love me like this more than I want Him to love me like this. He's expressing His Father's heart. I'm fortunate enough to be the recipient. Does that make sense? And that abiding with him like that has a transformational effect. You can't be touched by his love, his spirit like that, and not be affected by it. And that's changing from glory. That's what we're talking. That's what we're going to talk about. That's the whole point. Because it isn't just theoretical. And it isn't some kind of goal in the distance that's kind of hard to see. The inner life, you know, the evangelical traditions, we're kind of weak on this. We came to it late, and Luther didn't bring enough of it to us. But people have been um, writing about and experiencing and logging the relational life with God for almost 2,000 years, the Desert Fathers, Teresa of, Teresa of Avila, she has, she has this relationship with God so deep and so honest that she can write these words in her journal. It's written in her journal. It's no, Father, it's no wonder you have so few friends the way you treat them. Isn't that just that kind of honesty? That just knocks my socks off. I'm being able to talk to God like that. And when I'm, that's off. That's another point. The point is this. Prayer is predictable. We are not so unique that no two prayer lives are alike. Prayer lives have seasons. They have stages. They have things that typically happen. They don't always happen in the same order. But they, there have been people writing about this going on 2,000 years. And... They're writing from different cultures and different languages and different historical periods, and yet they talk about the same phenomena. It's almost like we think we're going through a strange country. We think we're the only one taking this journey through this new country with a new language and new everything else. But other people have walked this road before, and they've made margin notes, and they've scribbled on the map, and they've written, written tour guides, you know, God country on a dollar a day or whatever, like Michelin guide to having a relationship with God. There, It's not, look, we're people. We're all kind of alike in some ways. How we relate to God is not completely unique to all of us. We're people. So our prayer lives can have predictable stages and phases and problems and high points and low points. And coming to understand those things and how to approach him, it's not mysticism. It's not like, oh my gosh, it happened accidentally. Lots of things about it are, are, are possible to understand and talk about. How to begin approaching him to rest in him. There's ways to begin approaching him to rest in him, and we're going to do those. 
And I think they'll work. They worked for me. And I was the most type A driven person. To sit still for an hour that she would make me do just about killed me. It was horrible. To be still, I mean, to learn to sit still, just sit still, Mark, was torture. But you can learn to be still. You can learn to quiet your mind. You can learn to quiet your heart. Hmm? I've been doing it, just in not doing a lot of it, other than my own mind rambling. Sometimes what you get out of it is not what you're thinking you're getting out of it because something is happening at a deep level. Maybe you're learning to quiet your heart. Maybe you're learning a discipline of being still. And it pays some benefits later often. Anyway, that's the whole point of what we're doing. Is looking at, now, this is all theory. This is all theology and theory and motivation. The rest of it becomes, okay, now how do we do that? With some tools. That's what we're about. So, questions? Or comments? And listen, if you're sitting here thinking, this is really stupid... This is crazy. It's crazy for the following reasons. I would love to hear the reasons why it's crazy and have a discussion about it. I'm okay with somebody saying, I'm sorry, I just don't get that. It makes no sense to me. Or there's a problem with this that you said, and there's a problem with this, and what about that, and how does this fit in? I'm not going to get offended to, to, to go there. So if something isn't making sense, please say, no, I'm sorry, but that part wasn't making sense. what it was, is my CD player was just turning on, and I always had a Bible on CD, and it would turn on, and 3.15 in the morning, freaked me out, <laughs> yeah. uh, and then the lights outside would start flickering, and I kept looking out there, there was no one there, really, and then I had those lights ripped out, because I couldn't sleep at night, the CD player kept going on, 3.15 in the morning, and then it would shut off. And I would just be sitting there videotaping it. It was turning on by itself and it's shutting off. And this went on for five months. And I would run home. And then after my third grandchild was born, then all of a sudden it started turning on at 12.15 during the day. And I went, hmm, what's going on here? So I couldn't wait. I'd come back from the chiropractor and the CD player would be on. And I'd run just to be in the presence of the Lord. I'd be sketching and I'd be allowing, and I would just allow God to pour into me. And then I had two women come to the house, and one woman said, Oh, my son has a CD player just like that. It has a time thing. And I said, But I didn't know how to do it. Just like that, five months of spending, could, I, I would run to be in the Lord's arms. I was angry, and I was angry with God, and I was angry that that wasn't from the Lord. And yet I looked at my notes, and I thought, all these experiences I had. So it has been since December that I stopped running into the Lord's arms, just couldn't wait, because the CD player would keep turning on, and I it would say, oh, it's just nothing anymore. And I... And I said, I'm sorry, Lord, I've been doing that. And he looked at me and said, I've been here. And I went, I've been here. 
negative spot. And just recently, I thought, I've got, I, mean, I couldn't wait to spend that time with God. But just because someone came over and it destroyed my illusion that God, and I know God orchestrated that because I don't even know how to do it. I stopped for like five months. And now I'm getting back into it again. And it's like, so here I had this phenomenal experience. And because someone came, it destroyed my faith. And I thought, am I so lacking in faith that with all the miracles I've seen, that I allow that to interfere with my intimacy with God? And so that's why I've been in bed a lot lately, just this past week. And the Lord's just saying, you're missing the boat again. I want you. And I right. Thought, oh. And then I remember when I felt really ashamed. I thought, I made this horrible mistake. And I'm so sorry, God. And I was just looking down and I actually experienced it. Grab my chin. And he looked at me and said, I love you. Even after all those experiences, I said, I'm not going to spend any more time. I don't even know that that's God. That's what happened to me. It's easy to get knocked off, isn't it? It's very you know? It doesn't take much to kind of knock us off the track. Yeah. What else? Any other thoughts? Comments? I was just thinking about the time I came home from church and laid down after lunch on my upstairs bed and my little dog lady, she came and lied down on the bed. I mean, on the bed, on the floor, because I don't allow her on that bed. She has a bed downstairs. So, and I just felt like the Lord said to me, I want you to be devote, as devoted to me as Lady is to you. Mm-hmm. I'm going, I like that, because, you know, I'm simple and I can understand something like that. <laughs> God's cool. Mm-hmm. What else? That just makes me think. I, I went to a, this conference where Lord King was speaking. That guy that um, is a co-author of Experiencing God. It was on prayer. Oh, with Henry Blackaby. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he. What you said just made me think of this example he gave. Of, I don't know if it was the medieval times or, or I, I don't remember what the times were when, when um, a servant would come to the king and. Um, would bow down. He was talking about where this position of prayer, this posture of prayer came from, which Christians have adopted, but it's not really biblical because the biblical example yeah. that we see on Sunday, yeah. you know, raise yeah. hands. But he said, Christians saw this practice of the servant would get down on his knees and the king would have open hands, which he was explaining consecrate means open hands, filled hands. Like a priest holds out his hands and we offer his sac- our sacrifice and put it in his hands. And he said, the servant would bow down on his knees and put his hands in the king's open hands like that. And he said, I'm your man. And I don't know, just made me think of what you said. Just that simple, that servant's heart. Like the dog, you know, is so loyal and devoted. It was like, it was a, and so the Christians adopted that practice because of the the idea of being that servant, mm. you know, just, I'm your man. And anyway, just made me think of it. Mm. Anything else? Okay, want to do a prayer exercise? Ready? Okay, you got to get real relaxed. Now, 
There's a whole um, teaching, which we will do, explaining why what I'm about to do is okay. So, until we do that teaching, to <laughs> let you know that this is not unbiblical, um, just trust me, but if you don't want to, don't do this exercise, okay? You guys need to be the judge of that. But what we're going to do is we're going to take a chapter, not a chapter, we're going to take a vignette from Jesus' life, and I'm going to narrate it um, as if you are the central figure in that story. And you're, I invite you to use your imagination to let the Bible story fill out in your mind's eye. Just like, just as if you were there. Just as if you were the person that this, this thing happens to, this encounter with Jesus. Okay? And uh, we'll go through it slowly. And I'll prompt you to, to see yourself in the scene. And I will sort of tell the story. And you'll let it unfold. And then um, we'll debrief, see what it meant, what you learned, how he became more real to you in this experience. So you need to be really comfortable. You can sit back. You can lie on the floor if you want. Just get really comfortable so there's no physical distractions um, distracting your, your mind and your heart. And we're going to pray for a moment and ask the Spirit to be involved in this and see to it that there's no contrary spirits. And then we'll do it. Okay? So close your eyes and get comfortable. Holy Spirit, we um, what we want to give you access to our minds and to our imagination. So we invite you to use our imagination to reveal more of Jesus to us, the Father's love and, and you. So we give ourselves to you, Lord. And in the mighty name of Jesus, we take authority over every spirit, not the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we command you to be quiet and be gone in Jesus' name. And we invite only the Holy Spirit to direct our minds. We give only the Holy Spirit, the use of our imaginations. But we invite you, Spirit of Jesus, to reveal Jesus to us in a deeper way. You are about five, maybe six years old. See yourself as a child in your house where you grew up. It's a perfect summer day, just a perfect day. It's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's sunny, it's beautiful. And you're at home. Your mother or your father, maybe both of them, comes to you and says, we're going to see Jesus. How do you feel? We're going to take you to see Jesus. Whoever it is takes you outside and you walk from the house. You're heading towards 
local park. And you can see in the distance, you can see the park and see a whole big, big crowd of people. There's a lot of people standing around. You get closer to the crowd. Someone's talking in the middle of the crowd. The whole crowd is quiet. They're all listening. Someone talking in the middle of the crowd. But you can't. You can't see them because all these people are standing and they're all bigger than you are. You're going to see Jesus. How do you feel? You get close to the to the outside of the crowd. And just coming up to the outside edge of the crowd and some sort of official looking guy comes up to you and says, Jesus doesn't have time for children. You should go. How do you feel? And then here in the Distance, the guy who's talking says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let that child come to me. The crowd starts to open. And they get out of your way. You start to walk into the center. And there's this man sitting on a chair in the middle of the crowd. And he sees you. And he says, come here. How do you feel? And you walk right up to him. And he looks at you and he reaches out his hands and he says, come here. What do you do? What does he do? And he picks you up. He puts you on his lap and he holds you. How do you feel? What does he say to you? What do you say to him?
How do you feel? The crowd is all gone, and it's just you and him. I'll let the scene fade. Okay, open your eyes. <laughs> so who took you to Jesus? What did it feel like when the guy said Jesus doesn't have time for children? Did any of you recognize the person that said Jesus doesn't have time for children? Was it a person you knew? Mm -hmm. That's important. Yeah. Tells you a lot. What did it feel like when he said, wait a minute, let that child come to me? Freedom. <laughs> what was it like when you walked up to him? How did you feel? Love. Did he did he pick you up? What did it feel like? And then held. Did he say anything? Yeah. What did he say? I love you. Yeah. He was kissing me. Anybody else hear him say anything? 
Did you say anything to him? That's pretty cool. Yeah. What about you, little chef? I just felt safe there. Just called up on his lap. I didn't say anything. He didn't really say anything to me, but I just felt safe there. I was like, I don't want to leave. I'm good right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. How did you feel being in his lap? What was the fe- what was the strongest emotion? Safety, security, peace. Did did he say anything to anybody that surprised you? Anything that you didn't expect? I'll bet you a thousand dollars. Yeah. As soon as the Holy Spirit starts to touch our hearts, pretty well the first thing we do is cry, right? Mm-hmm. And half the time we don't even know why. Mm-hmm. We're just being touched at such a deep level. It seems like the only appropriate response. But why, um, no matter how humble we think we may be, or Christ like we may think we may be, we're so ashamed of those tears if someone else is around. I mean, even when you first start to choke, you're just... I just want to like run and hide, like God forbid anybody sees any weakness or any vulnerability or any. I mean, it's okay for others, but it wouldn't be okay for me. Part of it is an issue of safety. You have to feel safe enough to risk your emotions with another person, but it's. Almost always the right thing to do, Paul. Especially when he begins it. It's freedom. You know, what's this whole thing about? I rejoice in my weakness because in my weakness, God gets to be God. Most of the time we don't experience God until it's in our weakness, right? That's the window that we cry out to him through is our weakness. And... uh, You're going to take those words, those two words, I know, and they're never going to go away in your heart or in your mind. You know them in a new way now. 
You really do, because you experienced him. So it changes your understanding of him. It changes how you see yourself with him. In this exercise that we did, had Jesus say, okay, here's the list of things I want you to do today. <laughs> not one. That's not his first interest. His first interest is you. To be with you. To love you. To enjoy you. To have you enjoying him. Few, but... There's a thing you can do where you take the Gospels and you start with his birth and you read the scene through three or four times so it's in your head and then you just close your eyes and you imagine you're a participant. You're there. Yeah, one of the characters maybe. And I did this with his whole life from his birth right through to the resurrection. It takes a while but it's unbelievable what God can do through your imagination, making scriptures come alive, being the blind guy who spent your whole life blind. And then he heals you on the road. The first thing you see in your life is his face. You're looking into the eyes of God. It's just like, wow, how good he is gives him a chance to become real to us in a way that he's never been maybe real to us before. Uh, another way of seeing and experiencing him. And I'm not saying, and we'll go over this in the business on the use of imagination, I'm not saying that what you're seeing is historically accurate. The point is true. What he wants to say to you, what he wants to communicate of himself is, is true. The setting and how it all works out, that's just whatever facilitates the message. But the message of what he wants to get across, those two words, you know, that's what he wanted to say. That's what he wants you to know. And that changes you. What else did he say to anybody? is to return to this image and to return to the image over and over again till it no longer touches you. And that can be one return or two returns or three returns. There's a measure of something, even in this little exercise, five minutes, there's a measure of something that he wants to give to you, that he wants to impart. And you haven't, it's like mining for, oil, for gold or something. You, you haven't taken everything out of this experience right now. There's a whole lot more that he'll want to either reinforce or deepen or, or add something to it. But try this. In the next time you go to prayer, the next few days, just spend five or ten minutes just sitting down and saying, I just want to be held by you. I, I just want to sit with you. I'm not here to do great things. I'm not here to concern myself with matters that are too great for me because I've stilled and quieted my soul within me like a weaned child with its mother. My eyes are not proud and I'm not haughty. 
I don't concern myself with things that are too great for me. I just want to still my heart. And I just want to be quiet and rest in your arms like a well-fed child with its mother. So, Lord, that's what I'm here to do. And I'll pray for the missionaries later. And I'll worry about the economy later. And I'll do the seven for seven in a minute. But right now, I'd just like to return to that thing from Friday night. I just want to be with you again. Would you just please hold me for a few minutes? And let him do it. And then listen to see if he wants to say something. And you say whatever you want to him. But it doesn't have to have words. Most of the best moments don't. The most natural moments often don't have words. So just be there with him. Let him love you. Enjoy it. Soak him up. Give him some adoration. And what you find, too, is you start um, places in the Word where uh, the prophets or the psalmists are soaking in his love will just leap out of you. Like Zephaniah three sixteen. on that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear. The Lord your God is with you. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The word there for rejoice is a, a very funny word, uh, gox. It actually means an ostrich flapping around, out of control, laying an egg. That's seriously what that word means. And this is describing God. He is crazy, spinning around, delighted. And yet, unless I, I think that we take time to experience it, we read over that and it glazes. It, it just goes right over our heads. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. But the more you soak and then you start to experience it and then you read it, it's like, you know, I'm like, ah, that happened. And, and this is the Old Testament. You know, we. You know, where God is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, it's amazing. You will see as, as you do these prayers and, and you start this um, mindset, this paradigm shift of it's not about what we do and we start to accept being held. It, it, you, the, even the word will change. Even reading the Bible will change. One writer calls it wasting time with God. <laughs> And that's a very intentional way to see it. Some people say, I find this kind of prayer so frustrating because nothing got accomplished. Wow, what an insult to being with him. Huh? You know, old people, like I mean, not like us, but like really old people, where they've been married for a long, long time and they sit together on the porch and 20 minutes goes by and he says, going to have to cut the grass tomorrow. And she goes, yeah, 10 minutes goes by. Don't know if I got gas in that tank for the mower. Another 10 minutes goes by. I thought I saw some yesterday. Another 20 minutes goes by. You understand? I mean, they're just together. And they're enjoying their mutual presence. And they don't have to clutter the presence with conversation. Mm-hmm. They don't have to. Mm-hmm. They're happy just to be in each other's presence. Like a well-loved child with its mother. It's weaned, it's fed. There's no desperation. Describe that person that 
was doing this style of prayer and didn't think anything was happening because there was nothing going through his mind. You had been sharing with him, and when you first met him and started exploring this prayer style, his mind was always going. There were things always going around. And then this time came of nothing, and he thought he wasn't doing it right. And really, it was working because that whole train was stopping. The busyness train had stopped, and he was just simply with God. But he thought that was a mistake because nothing was happening. <laughs> if you're really communing at that level, maybe it's better that nothing happens because you might wreck it. Don't junk up your prayers with busy speech. But can you imagine, like, even like a nanosecond without worry? <laughs> or in a little bitty second of not thinking about yourself? It's, what it's, heaven that is. It's pr- pretty wonderful. I remember Sister Nora, in the beginning of, she'd teach me, and we're going to do this, these exercises, to learn to be still. Because it's really hard, actually, mm-hmm. to be still. To be mentally still, and still in heart and not say something, and to be physically still, is extremely difficult. And it would be terribly frustrating. Like, I'd I'd spend 55 minutes trying to be still, and then there'd be like three minutes of stillness, and then the rest of the hour, the last two minutes, would be ruined with something else. And I remember going to her one day, and she said, "How how did your prayers go this week? And I said, it was horrible, it was absolutely awful, I just hated it. She said, well, what happened? And I said, well, like Wednesday, for instance. Um, it took me 55 minutes to come into the Lord's presence. And she said, then what happened? And I said, well, then he was there. He was there and I was with him. She said, for how long? And I said, well, for three minutes. And she leaned forward and she said, you were with the Lord for three minutes? I said, yeah. You were with God for three minutes? And I said, yeah, it was wonderful. And she just started rejoicing. That's wonderful. That's... And I said, it was only three minutes. And she said, that's not the point. You made it to him. You encountered him. The whole 55 minutes was worth it. You broke through. Guys, three minutes with God can change you. See, he's outside of time. It's the encounter that matters to him, not how long it lasts. He can download things directly into your spirit in three minutes that will change you, that is changing you. Don't measure the success of your prayers by how long the encounter is. That comes and goes. But that you broke through, that you were able to achieve some kind of stillness and not fretting and worrying and going crazy, a little mouse on the little wheel. You know, the mouse stepped off the wheel. Praise Jesus. And the more you do it, I'm telling you, the more you do it, the easier it gets until the day comes when you can go into his presence just like that, just by being still and quiet in your heart. It just starts to happen. And that's not magic. That's discipline. It's his training. You, you, you learn how to do it. And then the beauty of that is when crisis comes or you're in a prayer situation and you have to know what to pray for somebody and you just don't know. Instead of running off at the mouth, you just get still and quiet your heart and you wait. And then he tells you what to do. 
And isn't it more enjoyable to live life out of those moments than scurrying around? You know, trying stuff? Process of elimination? Living? So, hard as it may be at sometimes, it's totally worth doing. Okay. We done? I think we are. Or any questions or... In everything that you're doing, he's, he is present, but you're not always recognizing his presence. The better we become at recognizing how he makes his presence known, in other words, it's a really fun thing to do. This is a cool, cool thing to do. Next time you're doing something like shopping, driving down the street, um, housework, pause for a second and say, how are you present for me right now? Just pause and say, Lord, how are you present for me in this situation right now? And, and think about it for a few minutes, and he'll show you. And then his presence will deepen. The experience of his presence will deepen. Because you've paused in all thy ways, acknowledge, look for, recognize my presence, and I'll direct your paths. So it's really a fun game to do. How is he present right now? You can even do it, we were on a ministry trip one time driving to Mexico. And I said, hey guys, let's try this right now as a car. How is God present for us right now? And everybody starts sharing. He's present in so-and-so, what she just said. Look at that sunset. Or he's present in this for me right now. And the, just the fact of sharing this as a group of people in the car driving along, it was like a worship thing by the time we got there. Wow, God is filling this car. It's really, the more you open yourself to hit the awareness of his presence, the stronger his presence becomes. And the more we can live in it and live out of his presence so that our actions become reflective of him coming out of a place of encounter with him. And then those actions have great power and great effect because they're him through us and us through him. Mm -hmm. And I just want to 